All right, let's take our Bibles. Let's take our Bibles and we'll talk this morning about whether the Old Testament can actually be trusted. I, I just am so excited about this week. This is the beginning of Thanksgiving week and uh, we're gonna be able to spend some time with family this week down in, in South Carolina and North Carolina. And I'm really excited about seeing our nephews and our niece. Um, for those of you who have nephews and nieces, isn't that an awesome thing? I mean, you can get them fired up, sugared up, tell them stories, and then you let them go home with their parents, right? Maybe it's somewhat like being a, a grandfather. And I just, there's so much to, to be thankful for, and I'm going to get to see Micah, and I've got this, um, I've got this real, rep, it's actually not a replica, it's a real piranha all the way from Brazil that my dad brought back in the 80s on a mission trip. And whenever I talk with Micah on FaceTime, he'll ask, where's fish? Where's fish? And so I'll get this fish, and it's getting like, hey, Micah, you know, it's got this really gravelly voice that, come on, it's awesome, and that I talk to him with, and he, he, he's kind of afraid of this fish, but he likes it at the same time, and he's always telling me, eat the fish, eat the fish, where's fish, because he wants it to be subdued, and so we're going to get to have fun with fish this week, and, and actually, opening day of deer season, thanks so much, Mike and Jonathan Scott, for letting us go. We were able to go deer hunting, didn't see anything, but my wife went on deer hunting first day. It was so cool, and we were there in the woods, and, and, and they've got big bear on this property, like, I mean, monster bear, showing them on the game cameras. I'm like, that is a huge bear. And then, and then Jen said, well, you're gonna shoot one if you see it. I'm like, well, baby, I didn't buy a bear stamp. I don't care. You will shoot that bear. And I'm like, my wife is for poaching. Yeah, you know, I'm thankful. It was awesome just being there in the woods and, and we're getting, you know, be able to spend time with, with family, some of us here this next week or so. But I just, I think about all the things that we could be grateful, right? And then we could go down to things like, Lord, we thank you for, for family. We thank you for a place that we can gather here. We thank you for religious freedom. We thank you for Krispy Kreme. We thank you for the Second Amendment. We thank you for, you know, structures, we can have legal representation if we're long, wrongly accused, all of that stuff. But you know what? I think that in these next three weeks, we're doing a series called The Battle for the Bible. We just finished seven messages on the existence of God. We went through everything from the laws of logic to science and saying, where does the evidence actually point to? to the existence of God or to atheism. And we saw absolutely that if you are an atheist and you had to deal with these arguments, you had to be at the very least a skeptical atheist, which means that you're an agnostic and not an atheist. And we see that there is so much evidence for the existence of God. But for those of you who were here last week with us, we ended up with the last question. We can say, all right, well, if there is a God, then which one? Because you have got more, I mean, you've got more options than you do Skittles today of the existence of God. Which God is there if there is actually a God? And we saw how all of these world religions fail on the plumb line of death. That death is the plumb line. Everybody dies. Muhammad has died. Uh, Gautama Buddha. All of them have died. But resurrection is actually a win. And when we have an open mind and we come to the Bible, but not only the Bible, just to ancient history, we see that the evidence points to that Jesus was killed, he was crucified, put in a tomb, they couldn't find him. Where does the evidence point? The evidence point that something supernatural happens. We call that a resurrection and we call that a win. Praise Jesus. 
And it's not, it's not just something that like we watch that video at the end, you know, that's my king, like a fired up video. We're like, that's right. That's right. That's the one that I serve. It's not just an emotional thing. But when we look at the Bible and we look at actual evidence, it leads us intellectually and emotionally to the fact that Jesus Christ is the risen, living Son of God, and he's alive right now, and he can change our lives if we surrender to him. So then we're going to get to a more precise question these next few weeks. Next Sunday, I hope that you're here. We brought in the big guns, Dr. Leo Purser. He's the director of the PhD program at Liberty University. He teaches New Testament Greek, the New Testament. If you hand him a Greek Bible, he can actually just open it up. He can read it to you, just like I can read to you the comics. All right? Like the bro is like smoking smart. He's going to be here. He's got a special presentation prepared for us. And he's going to talk next Sunday, 11 a.m., on can you actually trust the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts? This morning, we're going to talk about the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is actually, if you talk to a Jew, that's their Bible. The Old Testament is actually the Hebrew Bible. And the Old Testament, believe it or not, is even older than the New Testament. All right? So what we're going to talk about this morning is can you actually trust the text of the Old Testament? Two weeks from today, we're actually going to talk about prophecies from the Bible, how they can actually confirm what we know to be true in our spirit when the Holy Spirit tells us that the Word of God is true and Jesus is the Son of God. So we've got some awesome stuff to do this morning, so let's jump in. And as we do that, what we're going to try to get across here this morning, that history aside, scholars aside, archaeologists aside, for those of you who dig archaeology, all of that, all of that aside... For a Christian, thank you, those of you five who are tracking with me this morning, that for those of us who believe that the resurrection actually happened, that is the most unusual, miraculous thing, dead, dead, doornail, I mean, dead in a funeral home in the middle of the night, dead, completely no life, dead, D-E-A-D, dead. And then you actually come back to life fully alive, more alive than ever. If you can believe that, and by the way, that's where the evidence points. It's not a crazy thing to think about it, unless you're a biased person and you have excluded the supernatural before you even begin your explanation or your investigation. But if you come with an open, honest mind and open heart to find the evidence and follow it wherever it may lead, and you don't exclude the supernatural, you can intellectually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's kind of piggyback on that. If you believe that to be true, then it's probably true that Jesus is a little bit unique. All right? Like, we're, we're going real minimal here. Like, if he can do that, and not only be raised from the dead after handing over his life as a ransom for many, as the scripture tells us. Not only that, here's what's crazy. Jesus called all those shots. I mean, man, just like, just like in basketball. You know, there's that guy who's like, three-point, fade away, money. Yep, that was for your mom. Crossover, drive in, boom, bang. All right, how are you doing this? Like, have you ever, played, have you ever played against people like that? And that's when God, you realize that God has given you elbows. 
right? I mean, those people that can just call shots that are so hard and it just happens, boom, boom, time after again. Jesus called all of that that happened before it happened. And Jesus also believed in the reliability, the inspiration, and the infallibility of the Old Testament. So we're going to look at archaeology, we're going to look at history this morning, but for those of us who come with open minds, even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, even if you're not born again and saved, you have to say, if I believe that about Jesus, then I would also take very heavily what he believes about the Old Testament. So let's get into the meat of it this morning. Here's a few texts that are there in your outline that the Old Testament says about the Word of God. One would be from Psalm chapter 119, verses 160. This is actually the longest chapter in the Bible. The Bible says, your word is true from the beginning, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Proverbs chapter 30, verse five. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Romans chapter 15, verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, this is speaking specifically about the Old Testament. So the Bible is very clear that the Old Testament is not outdated. It's not old in the sense of we don't need to use it anymore. But the Old Testament is actually what God used to provide the framework for Jesus' life, ministry, miracles, and resurrection to actually fit into. So here's the question. People have said, is the Old Testament actually reliable? Because the difference between the Old and New Testament is there is a large difference in age. And people say, well, if you put the Old Testament back, like the life of David, over 3,000 years ago, David lived. That is a long, long time. And the arguments from the skeptics are that if you give something time, you have more of a chance of corruption creeping in to a manuscript. And also with being 3,000 years ago, we don't have the daily Sumerian times to read. That's a long time for things to survive at all. So for many years, Christians were told, you may be able to hold in the New Testament, but to the Old Testament, you may be checking your brain at the door. And this is something that's helpful for us to know as New Testament believers, that there has been a long war against the word of God. 215 to 164 BC, this is a ruler, a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, it literally meant the God who is in the flesh. He literally thought himself to be a God. So he had a minor bit of an ego problem. And this guy hated the Jews. He hated the God of the Old Testament. He hated the God of the Bible so much, check this out, that he, he invaded the land of Israel. He got a pig, which is like you just don't do pig in Judaism. You don't do pig. You don't do bacon. You don't do sausage if you were a Hebrew, especially in the Old Testament. And he brought a pig on into the the temple, and he sacrifices the pig. We don't even have, we, like we don't, that's like, that's like invading D.C., ripping down the Constitution, smashing open the bulletproof glass, and taking the Constitution, the Declaration, and burning it, and erecting a nasty swastika or a communist hammer and sickle, a picture of Joseph Stalin in its place. That doesn't even scratch the surface. Like we don't even have an equivalent for that. He hated the Jews. 
And not only did he try to desecrate their, their area of worship, but he declared that all copies of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, are to be confiscated and burned. Under penalty of death, you would hide a copy of the Word of God. But he's dead. And you have the Old Testament. Jerry, I think we lost um, the connection here. Let's try this. You want to come work on it? We'll just work through this um, while you're doing that. We're trying some new stuff with the tech here. And um, God is sovereign over technology. Amen? All right. All right. So Jerry will get us. And no pressure, Jerry. We love you. Um, He may already have it up there. Oh, sweet. Dude, you are the man. What a boss. Let's give it up for Jerry. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Jerry. This may lose a connection, but we've got a connection to you. You've got a connection to the Lord, so all right. Okay, not only that, but there's another Roman leader named Diocletian. And notice the time frame here. This is around 303 A.D. Um, he was one of the most brutal Roman dictators in terms of persecuting Jews and Christians. He decreed that all of the Christian scriptures, New Testament and Old Testament, are to be destroyed and Christians are to be killed. But yet, we have the New Testament and the Old Testament here this morning. Fast forward a little bit later, uh, 1199 AD, there's a pope named Pope Innocent III, and he was anything but innocent. He actually banned Bible translations. And this is really interesting. This is before the Reformation, uh, before Wycliffe and those guys who are translating the Bible. Um, In order not to lose religious control of the European population, he banned Bible translations by these groups, such as the Waldensians, who were taking the Bible and translating it into French, which is what the people in that area spoke. Before then, the Roman Catholic Church would not allow you to translate the Bible into the language that people actually spoke. So check this out. If we went there, if we were there in that time, we would go to Mass, and we would hear Latin, but you didn't speak Latin. You spoke Flemish, German, French, English, and so people didn't understand the Word of God. And he actually persecuted and killed people for translating the Bible. But Pope Innocent III is dead and we still have the word of God, and we have it in our own language. Not only that, but the institution of the communist regime in Russia in 1918 to a religious freedom was squelched. And by the way, socialism, as Lenin said, is always a precursor to communism. Socialism is always a precursor to communism. That's what one of the founders of communism and socialism actually said. It was illegal to preach the Bible, to translate the Bible, but there, were, there was a man named uh, Brother Andrew, and he was actually a Bible smuggler into the Soviet Union, smuggled tens upon thousands of Bibles so that people could have the Word of God. But today, the Soviet Union is dead, and the Word of God is not. Amen? There's been a long war against the Word of God that the Bible that you hold in your hand or The Bible app that you have downloaded on your smartphone is the result of people sacrificing to keep it in existence, and it's the sovereignty of God that has overpowered dictators who would seek to destroy it. 
This is a, a, a German liberal scholar from the 1800s, Julius Wellhausen, and he came up with this theory that's actually still taught in many mainline liberal seminaries today, although there have been many arguments been put forward that have undercut it. He actually denied that the Old Testament was the inspired word of God. Now, he taught in a seminary that trained pastors and missionaries. And what they were taught is that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, were basically plagiarized Canaanite literature. It's not the word of God. It was written after the fact um, that when you even have prophecies that are found in the Old Testament, that those were written as Wellhausen and his other friends taught. Those are written after the fact, so they weren't actually prophecies, even though there's massive amounts of evidence to suggest that they were written early. This was called the documentary hypothesis, and it is the kernel of the disease that is still infecting many mainline denominations in the United States today who will not take a stand to say that the Bible is the word of God. And I would just encourage you, regardless of your background, whether you're Presbyterian, Methodist, Bible Church, whether you're a chicken-eating, loving Southern Baptist, whatever it may be, go to, if you still claim to hold to that group, ask them what they believe about the Bible. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're aligning yourself with a group of people who don't believe the Bible and are teaching their pastors and missionaries and church leaders that the Bible is not the word of God, then what you get is a dead denomination. And we're seeing that all across the board with our mainline denominations. They are literally dying on a vine because who really wants to get up on a Sunday morning, especially when it's cold outside, and be told Christianity is about being a good person? Who wants to give to be told, you can't really trust this, but let me tell you parts of what I think you should do? It doesn't add up, and the younger generation is tracked with it. That's why this is across the board. The churches that are teaching, believing the Bible, being creative in ministry are growing, and the ones that are denying the Bible are stuck in tradition. They are dying. So you see, there's not only been a war on the Old Testament from dictators, there's also been a war on the Old Testament from inside the academy. And I believe, we, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, I want to kind of go out on a limb. If you don't believe me, that's fine. Let it soak throughout the week, but imagine you were Satan. And your desire was to destroy the church of God. You could try communism, you could try persecution from the outside, Right? You could try Diocletian, you could try Antiochus Epiphanes to just kill him and burn all the Bibles. But Satan has learned that that doesn't work so well. Because in many situations, when that happens, when persecution hits, all the fakers, they leave. Posers are gone. But people get saved and the church actually grows. So how could you actually destroy the church without, without actually letting the church know that it's being targeted? You put people to train church leaders who don't believe the Bible, and the church leaders are trained to not believe the Bible, and then what people hear on Sunday morning is that you don't necessarily need all the Bible. And then the church dies, the denomination dies, and the culture is given over to either radical Islam, secularism, Buddhism, whatever it may be, or honestly just old-fashioned American, I don't give a rip. It is a satanic deception that Satan was very, very brilliant in years ago placing people to teach people who are going to teach people that you don't really need to believe in the Old Testament. 
It's like a heavyweight fighter on a bad. The Old Testament guys has been pummeled time and time and time and time again. So then the original question, you say, well, Jeff, how do you know that the Hebrew scribes didn't change the manuscripts? Well, there was a group from 100 to 500 around about A.D., called the Talmudists. That's where we get the Talmud, which is kind of like a Jewish interpretation. Uh, it's a come-alongside book of the Old Testament. Their rule was, quote, not to begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink, and should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. They were absolutely obsessed with the accurate translation of the word of God. It is what they did. And not only that, from 500 to 900 AD, there was a group called the Masoretes, and they developed actually a system for writing vowels. If you look at modern Hebrew, you'll see these little squiggly marks underneath the Hebrew letters. Those are actually vowel markers, because before then, all you had in Hebrew was consonants. Imagine that. But the Hebrews knew what should be pronounced as it should be pronounced. And they actually, this is, I think this is cool. They actually counted the words of the Torah, the entire Old Testament. There are 400,945 words, and the middle word in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, is Leviticus 10.16, the word searched. That'll preach right there, right? Jesus talked to us about seeking the word of God, seeking and finding, and those who seek will find. So here's the issue. We knew about the Talmudists. We knew about the Masoretes, but the earliest copy that we actually had, as we'll talk here in just a moment, was, was way, way, way later. So here's what happened in, in 1947. Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran, near the West Bank in Israel. There's a little boy who was, um, <clears throat> who, was, who was tending his sheep, and they're throwing some rocks, and they heard something shatter in a cave. So they went up into the cave, and they looked, and here is what they found. They found these scrolls, and these scrolls, they contained one copy of Isaiah and every book in the Old Testament except for Esther. There was a 5% variation in spelling and minor stylistic changes. We'll talk about that in a moment. There was no change in the significance of what the text taught, no change in doctrine, and they were placed in these caves around 68 AD. For you history nerds, you know that in 70 AD, that's when Titus brought his Roman legions against Jerusalem, and there were, according to Josephus, a million and 100,000 Jews who died from within Jerusalem. They said the slaughter was so great that they were throwing bodies over the walls and there was this mass of decaying, slippery bodies and even Titus, a cruel Roman leader who just made a living out of killing people, said before God, this is not my doing. Like before whatever God may be in existence, Roman gods, Hebrew God, I don't know, this is not my doing. So they tried to save the Old Testament before the destruction of the nation. And it was this little boy, this group of shepherds who discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, why are, why are the Dead Sea Scrolls actually so important? Because here are the two earliest copies we have of the Old Testament before 1947. We have the Cairo Codex, which is dated at 895 A.D., also, the Leningradensis, which is 1008 AD. These were the earliest manuscripts that we had. So the Dead Sea Scrolls provided manuscripts that were a thousand years earlier. So guess what the skeptics said? 
They said it's probably going to have all sorts of changes, but it didn't. Had minor stylistic changes, like you can spell even in English, depending on where you're from. You can spell color different ways. You can spell my name, Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y, or the English spelling Jeffrey. You can spell gray different ways. But what blew people away was the fact that there was no change in the textual significance. There was no change in doctrine for a thousand years. And there was no Kinko's copy. There were no smartphones to just, boom, take a picture, slap it on Instagram. Handwritten manuscripts. If anything speaks to the sovereignty of God, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls should blow our mind. Here's what Flavius Josephus said. He said, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured to add or to remove or to alter a syllabus. And it is an instinct with every Jew from the day of his birth to regard them as the decrees of God, to abide by them, and if need be, cheerfully to die for them. Time and again, time and again, are now the slight has been, been witnessed of prisoners enduring tortures and death in every form in the theaters, the Roman Colosseums, rather than utter a single word against the laws and its allied documents. Here's what Frederick Kenyon says. He says, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God, handed down with that essential loss from generation throughout the centuries. So some will say, okay, well, we know that the text will give that to you, you radical, wild Christians who actually believe the Bible. We'll give that to you that the text hasn't changed, but is what the text actually says, is that true? Well, let's switch over to archaeology. Before this Hittite library was found in Turkey in 1906, if you had been a Christian in the Western world in the 1800s, guess what the, guess what the skeptics are saying? The only ancient document that we have that talks about the existence of the Hittites is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. There was never such a group of people called the Hittites until we found a massive, massive library of thousands of cuneiform tablets that you can actually buy a book. There's a book in my library published by New York University Press on the history of the Hittites. And last time I checked, the New York University Press was not a fundamentalist press. And if people doubt the historicity of the Bible, just say, well, give archaeology time to catch up. Number two, Sodom and Gomorrah. We found, their, uh, Dr. Bryant Wood, a very well-known archaeologist, has found the site of Sodom and Gomorrah. They said they have found evidence of not only earthquake activity, but bitumen, which is tar, which is the result of sedimentary rock being molded together. And here's a picture of where we now believe the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah to be. Because the judgment that God sent on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 was fire and brimstone. Massive amounts of fire. That's really interesting, isn't it? That we would find the ancient Sodom and find it burned. There's also Jericho. Before the 1930s, Jericho was only mentioned in the Old Testament. But today, you can do a basic Google search and find that Jericho 
they found that where it had been burned and there had been an earthquake. And guess what they also found? They found in this lair all sorts of food, valuable items, things that if you had come to Jericho after you had taken it over or after it had been destroyed, you wouldn't just leave lying on the ground. Remember when God told the Hebrews, when you take over Jericho, don't take any of the stuff. And Achan took the one thing, he took the garment, and then him and his family suffered the penalty. That to me is as close to an evidence outside the Bible for the historicity of the Bible as anything else in the world. Why would you leave that kind of stuff around, especially in a case of war? Could it be that the Old Testament is actually reliable? And there's a town named Gezer. This is really, 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 really interesting here. Gezer, which was... Excavated in 1969. Here's what Norm Geisler said, a great Bible scholar. He said that when Gezer was uncovered, they ran across a massive layer of ash that covered most of the ground. Sifting through the ash yielded pieces, and check this out, Hebrew, Egyptian, and Philistine artifacts. Apparently, all three cultures had been there at the same time. This puzzled researchers greatly until they realized that the Bible confirms exactly what they found. Hashtag smackdown. First Kings chapter 9, verse 16, in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer. He had set it on what? Fire. He killed its inhabitants and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. All of that happening together. And then we, many of us know the story of David and Goliath, when David told Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Before a few years ago, there was no mention of King David outside the Hebrew Bible. And again, skeptics, not giving archaeology time to catch up to the Bible, said, well, King David is just a mythic king. That's something that the Old Testament scribes invented in order to give themselves a king that everyone could look up to. But what happened in 1993 is <clears throat> this cuneiform tablet's carving was found to where it is referred to the house of David. David's existence as a king has been corroborated outside the Old Testament. Avram Bingham, the famous archaeologist, said this is the first time that the name of David has been found in any ancient inscription outside the Bible. And not only that, the Ebla tablets, discovered in the 1960s, published 1970s by a University of Rome professor, they actually record biblical names, towns, and Hebrew words. Many of these towns, people will look, the skeptics again will say, well, that's the only place we see that town mentioned anywhere in the ancient text, but yet they don't give archaeology time to catch up to the Bible. And the Ebla tablets have been an absolute cornucopia of evidence. And I think we're kind of getting down to the nitty-gritty here, honestly, that Jesus' statements, when Jesus talks about Isaiah, Jesus says Isaiah wrote it. Jesus, when he talks about the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, he references Moses as the author. And if I can believe that Jesus actually lived and died, like actually died and actually rose again, then I'm going to take his word to the bank I mean, whether it be on money, whether it be on eternity, whether it be on family, on ethics, or on who wrote the Old Testament. And archaeology, this is what's so interesting, archaeology has confirmed 
the Old Testament, where the Old Testament speaks of it, but it also confirms the words of Jesus. And a lot of this has been up here, hasn't it? I want you guys to know that having the Bible is an unspeakable gift. We're going to watch a video here, and we want to give it some good volume. Video that's going to run a few minutes on this tribe in Pawpaw called the Kimyal tribe, and this is the first time they are receiving the Bible in their own language. Traffic advisory, Mike Alpha Delta from Sintani to Corpo. Now crossing the ridge uh, just above Sela, maintaining 1-2000. There'll be a big party when we land. They'll be dancing and singing, and that'll be pretty amazing. <laughs> Pastor had said, it says in, in the Gospel of John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is that Word, and Jesus is coming, and we need to be there to meet Him. Just blew me out of the water. I thought, Lord, this is how we know that it's you doing something here. off to the older believers and one of the ladies just spontaneously I don't think she they had planned for her to say anything but she just said we have taken God's Word we've accepted it we've put it into our hearts and now we're going to give it to you young people who need to also take it and accept it and walk with God as he teaches in this Bible 
you know, so they handed it off to the younger uh, believers and, uh, you know, the, the crying and the sobbing that took place there was just, it was something totally unexpected to me because I knew they would be happy. But the emotion that came out was just so overwhelming to me. I thought, we have no idea. You know, we have had the Word of God for so long. We have taken it for granted. We've, we, we have resources. We have translations. We have, you know, all these different things. And we don't, we don't cherish it. We don't realize what a precious gift we have and hold in our hands. And these guys were realizing that and saying, God, you've come to us through the Word. you guys see the, the depth to which they treasured the Word of God? And they had waited, they had waited. There's a longer video you can check out on YouTube. They had waited and waited and waited and had to use all of these other translations that they had learned other language in order to be able to use. And as I was watching this and, and preparing for our, our time together this morning, and I said, do I, do I, value, <clears throat> do I value the Bible, Old and New Testament, I mean, do I actually value it? I know I say I do. I mean, if you say, Jeff, what do you believe about the Bible? It's the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. What, what it speaks to, it is absolutely true, and it has the ultimate authority. But when I saw that, <clears throat> when I saw that video, and these people are weeping, and the reverence with which they showed to where when the Bible packages were unloaded from that missionary train, or plane rather, and they, they held the copies of the Bible like you would a newborn baby. And they were so thankful. Did you guys catch that? And again, there's a longer video that you can look at if you, if you have time to cry. The love that they had for the Word of God was not just that they worshipped a book that said stuff, because they had been changed by the God of the book, you see? As followers of Jesus Christ in Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, we don't worship this book, we worship the God of the book. And it may very well be that, that for some of us going into this week of Thanksgiving, you, you, need, to, you need to ask yourself the question, do you, do you, love, do you love God? I mean, seriously, you can come to a church service every Sunday or sporadically. You can be an absolute freaking joke. It's true. You can avoid the Bible, give it lip service, even give to it. May even do what a lot of people don't even care to do now, getting crazy here, is actually go to a small group Bible study. But do we love the Word of God? You see, when Jesus gave that parable in Mark chapter 4 about 
the seed on the soils. There is one that it's hard for me to get it out of my mind, and it's the seed that fell on good soil. It means someone that, that receives the word of God, they believe it, but then it's in the midst of thorns, and those thorns begin to grow, and as the seed of the word begins to grow, the thorns choke that seed to where it becomes unfruitful. And honestly, if we can be honest, and I hope we are in church, that's where probably most of us are. We live in a materialistic culture that says that it's all about us. What's choking your love for God? Your love for the Bible? Not, not, not what we say, not if you get penned against the wall by an atheist. What do you believe about God, about the Bible? None of that, but what do you actually do? What do your actions show? Like if NSA, CIA, go old school KJB, if they bugged your life, if they bugged my life, what would they see? They see anything resembling that? You say, well, I express emotion differently. That's fine, but do you have a passion that directs you to make the Bible and its teachings and the word of God preeminent in your life, in your marriage? Guys, do you lead your wife? Do you pray with her? Do you talk about scripture? Like, where does that fall into your day-to-day week? With the children? Do, you, do they know? What would they say if someone were to ask them, does your dad or your mom like the Bible? They may get hung up on the word love. Well, what, what would they say? Like, seriously. And I think God has blessed us at Rocky Mount Baptist Church. He's blessed us in a million different ways. I want you to be very honest. There's a lot of us in here that are lukewarm. Lukewarm as it gets. We got enough Jesus, we say the right things, we believe the right things, we may even give, I don't look at who gives what. But I believe if we as a church love the word of God as we should, we wouldn't be able to fit people here. Going on mission trips all, all year long. Do you love the word of God or do you just say it? Could be one of two things. One, how can you love something that you don't actually love? How can you love someone who's never actually impacted your life? In other words, if you've never been truly born again and truly saved, there's no reason for you to love the word of God or to love the God of the word. It makes no sense. If you've never been genuinely transformed in your heart that has resulted in a mindset change about life and an action change with the way that you talk, with the way that you treat people, if that has never happened, and it's not that you, want, that you need to start loving the word of God more, you need to get saved and repent of your sin and be saved from hell. Yeah. 